Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. Right now, sun in the skies. Welcome to this Thursday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, how the Atlanta Regional Commission is working to provide behavioral health coaching for seniors living in public housing. So I will begin the journey to treatment with them, uh, schedule the appointments for them, go with them to the appointments, take them out to lunch after the appointment, empowering them to understand the benefit of being in treatment and how uh, remaining in treatment empowers their lives. That conversation coming up in just a moment. But first, as we always do, our daily update on the number of the coronavirus cases here in Georgia. Today marks a milestone. The state is reporting more than 150,000 cases of COVID-19. To be exact, 152,302 cases are confirmed. 15,922 people are hospitalized. And of those, 2,967 are ICU admissions and 3,335 people have died. That is, of course, according to the Georgia Department of Public Health. How do we get here, and what will it take to flatten the coronavirus curve? You don't hear that as much, and we're going to talk about that. Joining me now is WABE health reporter and host of the podcast, Did You Wash Your Hands? Sam Whitehead. Sam, as always, thanks for taking the time. Yeah, good to be with you, Rose. So, Sam, we've reached this pandemic milestone of more than 150,000 confirmed COVID-19 cases. What do you make of this? Well, I like to think just about how fast we got here, right? It's taken less than a month for confirmed COVID-19 cases to double in Georgia, right? Mm -hmm. So we broke 75,000 cases around June 27th, less than a month ago. Of course, we know that the more you test, the more you're going to find. And certainly testing has ramped up since the start of the pandemic, not just in Georgia, but all over the place. But health officials here in the state and independent public health experts say there has been an increase in community spread that's not attributable simply to more testing. So this really is a milestone that we've reached this week. Um, You know, Sam, I want to continue on with this milestone and how we got here, but it was interesting. I want to take our listeners back and I want you to listen to this as well, because back in February, when we first all started talking about this, and I spoke with Emory University's Dr. Carlos Del Rio about this new mysterious illness called the coronavirus. I think the biggest question is, is it going to come here? Is it going to come here? And, you know, if I knew the answer to that question, Mm -hmm. I would, I would, uh, you know, be playing in Vegas. But what can I, I can say in the U.S., we've had 12 patients so far. There has not been transmission from those patients to other people in the United States. I think CDC and the authorities are doing a lot. But the most important thing is we need public health preparedness. Public health preparedness, in my mind, is like preparing for fires. I hope I don't have a fire in my house, but I have a fire alarm and we have extinguishers, and if they have a fire department. So if there's a fire, we can respond. That's what public health response should be. 
So, Sam, back early in February, only 12 cases confirmed in the U.S. Now here in almost the end of July, we've got well over 3 million. What do you make of that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting because the CDC has said in the meantime that the virus was likely here and spreading as early as January, right? So Del Rio is talking about a handful of cases, but we know now that there was more disease here than that. It's also interesting to hear him talk about the public health response, Mm -hmm. um, you know, making this analogy to a fire department, because what we've really seen is that our public health response hasn't been able to put out these fires really effectively. Um, If we think about the problems that we're still having with testing here in Georgia, uh, Dr. Toomey, who leads our Department of Public Health, said last week, it's taking as long as two weeks for people to get test results back. Mm -hmm. And think about what that means for contact tracing. You can't really do that quickly and effectively if it's taking two weeks to get results, right? And it's hard to get people to quarantine while they're waiting. And so to get back to this analogy, it's like the fire department finding out about a new fire weeks after it happened, Mm -hmm. right? So that's really where our public health response is still even this many months after living with the coronavirus. Let's stay on track here with the public health response because early on there were some challenges in covering this in the early days. Uh, Has it gotten easier in terms of obtaining accurate data from state health officials? We know what the CDC is doing. Obviously, we know what Johns Hopkins is doing. But in terms of here in Georgia, Getting the information and it being accurate, what are your thoughts on it? Has it gotten better? I mean, it certainly has gotten better. I think, Rose, if we want to think about our state's public health response, we need to think about what they were really going into this pandemic with, the tools they had when it came to personnel and really money, right? Public health departments all over the country have been challenged by a lack of funding and a lack of resources over the last decade. Georgia is no different. And so in the early days of the pandemic, it certainly did take our Department of Public Health a little bit of time to get their feet under them, especially when it came to collating data, presenting data in a way that was straightforward and uh, made a lot of sense to the public. Um, But I don't necessarily think it's fair to blame that on the agency itself or maybe people there not caring. You have to think you get what you pay for. (laughs) It's the same with public health as it is for everything else. And in Georgia, our public health department has been over the last decade, they've lost money, they've lost people. And so certainly their response when it comes to sharing data with the public, maybe wasn't all it could have been, but it's really a question of what what are the resources they had to work with. And Sam, for our listeners who may not be aware of, who reports this information? Is it mostly from hospitals? Is it from medical examiners after there's been a, a death? Where is this information coming from? You know, my sense, Rose, is that the data that comes to the Department of Public Health comes from a bunch of different places. It does come from hospitals. It does come from local coroners and medical examiners who are investigating these deaths. And it really is kind of a monumental task to take all these different data inputs and make sure that, you know, your numbers aren't overlapping because you also have local public health departments that are reporting into the state that are also getting this data. So it really is a big task to put all this together. And and, and what we've seen over the course of this pandemic is our Department of Public Health acknowledging 
how big a task this is and how easy it is to make mistakes. I mm -hmm. think people might remember early on, our Department of Public Health was trying to report numbers multiple times throughout the day. What they've moved to now is a daily report in the afternoon because they have acknowledged essentially that they need time mm -hmm. to make sure their data is as good as it can be. And that time comes at the expense of reporting multiple times throughout mm -hmm. the day. And you know, Sam, as part of that reporting, obviously the COVID-19 deaths and hospitalizations. And just yesterday, Georgia had the second highest daily count of coronavirus-related deaths. In nearly three months, it was 81 people. Is there a surprise within the science and medical community here that we are now seeing a little bit of a spike? Well, it's, it's important to know that with all this data, there is a lag, right? So just because we saw this count of 81 new deaths yesterday doesn't mean that 81 people died yesterday, right? Like it takes time for this data to be reported. Mm -hmm. um, but I do think it is important that we had 81 deaths reported Wednesday. I think it was uh, 78 or so on Tuesday. Um, those are numbers that were big jumps from the days before. Um, and deaths are really a lagging indicator here, which means it takes time from when a person gets infected to when they you know, show signs of that infection to when potentially things get bad enough for them to need hospital care and then bad enough for them to die, right? Mm -hmm. So we have seen the kind of earlier indicators of this renewed surge in cases. We've seen more cases, we've seen more hospitalizations. So I think it's important to watch this space because the real question is, are we starting to see the uptick in deaths that we might've expected mm -hmm. as we've seen cases go up and hospitalizations go up here in the state? And you can also turn to Florida for now, a state that's had a, an enormous increase in everything, the number of cases and hospitalizations. The voice you hear is WABE health reporter and host of the podcast, Did You Wash Your Hands? Sam Whitehead, as we're discussing, Georgia hits this pandemic milestone this week of more than 150,000 confirmed COVID-19 cases. Now, Sam, as part of your podcast, you've had the opportunity to speak with a lot of health officials here. You recently spoke with John Harpert. He's the CEO of the Grady Memorial Hospital about how his hospital and others have reached capacity. Take a listen. During this second wave that we're experiencing in many parts of the country, we're seeing double, triple the amount of COVID inpatients that we saw during the peak that we experienced in May. So, Sam, a lot of hospitals like Grady, they are saying, look, we are either at or near capacity. Here's a simple question, I guess. What additional resources do they need? Sure. This tape actually came from a press call that uh, John Hopper was on, put on by the American Hospital Association. And, and th the real focus of hospitals at this point seems to be they need more money from Congress. Um, what, what Grady is having to do, Hoppert says, because they are so full with COVID and other patients, is start to cancel elective um, and non-essential surgeries. That's something they had to do earlier on in the pandemic. And those kinds of procedures are real money makers for hospitals. Um, and so with those being rolled back, Halpert says the pandemic has also cost Grady about $115 million just to prepare. Um, and so what he and a bunch of other hospital administrators are asking Congress for as they put together this next COVID relief bill, which they're currently working on, is more money because the American Hospital Association estimates half the hospitals in the country could end the year in the red. Um, Grady says that's their prediction too. And so the real worry is that 
as they lose these kinds of revenue streams, if they become more and more inundated with COVID patients, it really could make it hard for hospitals to, to keep operating. Mm, wow. Sam, I, I want to get to testing before we let you go, because there's been so much concern about, you mentioned it, folks getting their test results back, maybe taking two weeks, but how would you assess the state's current testing availability in the meantime? Are you hearing that there are more locations to go to, that people know where to go to to get tested? I I did a survey of a bunch of the kind of local public health districts late last week, and they said that most of their testing was about at capacity. Um, So they were really taking as many samples as they could on a daily basis and doing that throughout the week. So um, that was the picture last week. That was when Dr. Toomey, um, again, the head of our Department of Public Health came out and said, we're seeing results take as long as two weeks. Sample collection, though, when someone drives through and gets a swab stuck up their nose, right? That's only part of this, though, because a lot of these tests are sent off to private third-party labs, um, and that's really where a lot of this backup is happening. Quest, which is one of the biggest lab companies in the country, which is running tests for some of our metro Atlanta health districts, their turnaround time is still upwards of two weeks, right? So it's one thing if you can actually get an appointment to get a sample collected, which is difficult, then there's the wait time to actually get those results back. So this far into the pandemic, testing really still a challenge. You know, Sam, early on, we all heard about we have to flatten the curve. I don't hear that as much anymore. Are people just saying, look, we need to flatten the curve. We've been saying that. Is now the narrative more of let's get tested, let's wear masks, and let's just people stay home if they are compromised and somehow. What are we hearing? Yeah, it's it's interesting the way that messaging has changed. I wonder, Rose, if there's just more of an acknowledgement now mm-hmm. yeah. that the coronavirus is going to be with us for sometime and maybe flattening the curve early on felt like a very achievable goal i wonder if that goal seems further away than maybe it once did Mm -hmm. so the messaging from public health officials and even governor brian kemp has really been focused on mitigation the governor has put out many executive orders listing dozens and dozens of health precautions that you know bars, restaurants, uh, summer camps should take. He says people should follow those as well. So I think at this point, flattening the curve seems like maybe a little bit further out of reach than it might have earlier in the year. But I also think the way at which we looked at this pandemic early on might have been a little short-sighted if we thought that the curve could be flattened Um, in a short period of time here in the country. Certainly we have seen other countries have more success than us um, when it comes to actually doing that. But you're right, the way that people have talked about it it has changed. I think that that's just kind of a tacit acknowledgement that this is gonna be with us for longer than we initially expected. And meanwhile, we know what will remain with us, which is this messaging of practice social distancing, wear a mask or facial coverings and Wash your hands. Sam Whitehead is the host of the podcast, Did You Wash Your Hands? And WAB's health reporter, Sam, as always, thank you for taking the time. How are you doing? I know this has been your beat for a while now. How are you doing in all of this? Thank you, Rose, for asking. I will say, looking at this problem, you know, essentially every day (laughs) since, you know, mid-January, looking at this every day has got me thinking about this very, very long term. I think it's great to think that 
we can set a milestone for getting a vaccine by a certain time or getting back to schools at a certain time or, you know, college football starting again at a certain time. Mm -hmm. But for me, I've really, from looking at this every day, I've found it more just kind of uh, easier to temper any of my expectations and and just really think whenever I do think this is going to end, it's probably going to be a lot longer Mm -hmm. even than that. Sam Whitehead, as always, I appreciate you taking the time, Sam. Yeah, thanks, Rose. Thanks for having me. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Right now, both chambers of Congress are trying to compromise on the next round of stimulus measures. In the first one, called the CARES Act, funding went to improve or implement resources amid the pandemic. And here locally, through a partnership grant from United Healthcare and the CARES Act, a program already in existence is getting a boost. Since 2017, the Atlanta Regional Commission, also known as ARC, has operated a program that helps older adults with behavioral health challenges maintain their housing, thus preventing eviction. And now, with some additional funding through a partnership, the program is expanding. And joining me now with more is Mary Newton. She's a behavioral health program coordinator for the Atlanta Regional Commission. And Angela White is a behavioral health coach for the ARC as well. Mary, Angela, welcome to the program. Thank you for having us. Let's begin here, getting older. And when we talk about getting older, for those individuals who might have some behavioral challenges or or mental health challenges, and the few resources that may be out there for older adults with what you say are behavioral health challenges, I'm curious, is this almost a hidden crisis in terms of very few resources? Do you think people don't often think about that vulnerable population within older adults? Oh, I'm certain that they don't. When uh, we look at uh, what's going on with seniors, you know, we, we have an image of older adults in our minds and we don't think about those seniors who might've had lifelong issues with mental health mm-hmm. or substance abuse and how they continue, how they can continue to function. Another thing we forget too is that, um, even though this is the baby boom generation, a lot of boomers don't have a lot of money. Mm-hmm. You know, we know that a lot of seniors, they rely completely on social security. That's that's their net. You know, so when you think about um, the low income people, especially, and the, you know, the fact that, you know, social security does not give you much, and then you have chronic health issues that you have to address. Mm-hmm. I don't think that people realize that it is a growing issue. I, the whole mental health issue in this country is under address generally. Mm-hmm. And of course, thinking of the seniors is, you know, very few people think of that population. Angela, did you want to add anything? I do believe it's a hidden crisis. Um, many times in my experience, 
we've seen individuals in their 30s and 40s. Um, many of these older adults have had lifelong history of, of mental illness. And when they were younger, 45, 35 years old, mm -hmm. they may have worked and had employment that paid insurance and they were able to get treatment. But as they, they age around the time of 55, 57 years old, when they're no longer able to work um, due to their disability mm -hmm. um, and they're not old enough to get, you know, SSI and social security and these things, then they become in the population of those who, who are not receiving treatment. And by the time they do get benefits and able to get ins insurances, they're, they're no longer in tune to the benefit of, 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 of being in treatment. And so there, it's always a challenge and it's always a crisis to get them to understand that, you know, there's benefit in receiving mental health services because many of them have gone so many years without treatment and mm -hmm. then they feel like, well, I'm okay, I'm fine. I've lived all of this, these years, I've, I haven't taken medication, I'm fine. So it is a crisis and the resources are, are, are small. There's not a large, um, area of geriatric psychiatry out there so it is a challenge to find someone that understands the needs of this population and so in 2017 when you all started this program this was something new in the entire state for georgia correct right it started out as a pilot program because we recognize that one the issues is around housing mm -hmm. Um, a lot of people with, with um, undertreated or untreated mental health or substance abuse issues, um, they can make living and, in their residences very difficult. So we were we were approached by a couple of housing uh, groups to kind of look at the issue because you know, they were at risk for eviction. Mm -hmm. And if you have, if you have like a housing voucher or um, are in um, like Section 8 housing, if you do something, the, the, uh, the slightest lease infraction can, can mean that you lose your housing. Mm -hmm. And some resident coordinators don't understand that somebody may be acting out or acting differently, not because that's the way they are, but they might be an underlying issue. Mm -hmm. So that's where we came in using the resources of our aging and disability resource connection. And I don't know if you've heard of that, that's the ADRC, mm -hmm. where we provide a range of resources to help people in any aspect of life. But we thought too that particularly for people with mental health issues, this might be a good wraparound service. So that means that the coaches like Angela, they're experts in how to access these services, how to help people apply for public benefits, how to be assessed, do the assessment, help with the crisis management so that we can help stabilize their lives, help them um, work together with them, not impose a treatment plan on them, but work with them to empower them and help them get the strength and courage and confidence to live with independence 
and keep their housing. Angela, as a behavioral health coach, take our listeners through some of the typical issues that you are helping people work through. A marriage with the housing partners, we we all had the same goals was to look at a way we can help individuals stay in their housing because it's not always a situation where they're um, they may evict and many of them due to mental health issues would walk away from housing will leave abandoned housing to go back to the streets they once knew and so uh, in beginning to work with our partners um one of the key things and one of the most rewarding things for me was to allow them to see to increase their knowledge all the key players on the face of 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 the stigma that surrounds mental illness and that we most of these individuals are able to receive subsidized housing because of either age or disability and just on increasing their knowledge on the face of mental illness and 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 what are some of the symptoms that and how these symptoms may manifest themselves and how it may affect their housing so and working with them over the years, um, like I said, the goal is twofold to keep them in housing. So when I get a referral, you know, um, I'll assess the situation and then um, ask them if they will allow them to work with me in order to mm-hmm. keep them in their housing. So it, there's an there's so many issues that may many times an individual is not in treatment mm-hmm. or uh, have fallen out of treatment, um, not complying with medications. Um, and so they need to be reconnected to um, a mental health provider. And so I will, I work from um, a philosophy of advocacy um, empowerment and transformation. So I will begin the journey to treatment with them, uh, schedule the appointments for them, go with them to the appointments, take them out to lunch after the appointment and, and empowering them to understand the benefit of being in treatment and how uh, remaining in treatment empowers their lives. And after the empowerment piece, I hold them accountable and I sit back and wait for to see the transformation in individuals. So as we as I walk along the journey with them, connecting them to whatever resources they may need, um, not just um, mental health services, some need in home services, some need food delivery, mm-hmm. you know, home deliver meals, some need um, to reconnect with family. There's a lot of needs that the individual may have. So I take that journey with them and um, having the support of someone who will walk the walk with them empowers them. Mm-hmm. And then you know, it's only a matter of time before you see them transform into individuals who can take charge of their lives and stay connected. And um, after a while, they start telling me, oh, I'm doing this now and I'm doing that. <laughs> so it, it becomes really beautiful to see an individual who could barely function their day-to-day lives become empowered and, and taking charge of their lives. 
The voice you hear is Angela White. She's a behavioral health coach for the Atlanta Regional Commission. And I'm also joined by Mary Newton, the behavioral health program coordinator for the ARC. And we're talking about a program that's helping older adults maintain their housing and thus prevent eviction. And Angela, I want to go back to you for a moment because you mentioned walking along the journey with them and you reach a point where you realize that they are getting the help that they need and it gets to a point where you sort of see success. So now on that, you all are expanding because you're going to be able to help many more people. How did this new partnership come about? Recently, we received a grant from United Healthcare's Empowering Health Commitment Program in the amount of $200,000 that will enable us to expand the program at a behavioral health coach. We also received an additional $150,000 from the CARES Act. Mm-hmm. So it will also enable us to add staff to the program. In addition, pilot it in another area. We'll be working with the Augusta Area Agency on Aging to pilot the program there as well. So this program will allow us to fund two more coaches and hopefully through the result of the program, we hope to reach about 150 new clients. Let's talk about results of the program. You Uh heard Angela talk about the success stories. Is that the main metric that you use to assess the effectiveness of this program that's been around for about three years? How do you all assess that? Well, that's an interesting question. What we look at is improved access to services. Were we able to expand the amount and types of services, supportive services that person needs to continue to to continue on their journey? If we're if we're helping them better manage the health conditions. That's one of the things we look at. Um, Reducing hospitalizations. That's another key thing Mm -hmm. because, you know, you know, with various conditions, you could be running back and forth to the hospital for any number of reasons. And we look at um, looking at decreasing hospitalization, uh, decreasing uh, encounters with law enforcement and also eliminating or or decreasing lease infractions. So, and that, and with all that, we're looking at the overall stability of the individual's health and well-being. So those are the outcomes we look for. And to your point, um, we will be working with, uh, we have an evaluator uh, who's gonna be working with us to kind of parse and refine the outcomes piece Mm -hmm. so we can have a better sense of and crystallize those outcomes. So that's part of this new grant also. We'll be able to have a program evaluator who will help us more uh, uh, focus on those kinds of outcomes and, you know, make it more meaningful. And, you know, they say data tells the story. So uh, we want to be clear that, you know, what we're doing is what we say we're doing. And another story, unfortunately, is because we're in this pandemic And Angela talked about the importance of meeting with the clients and and talking to them and being with them along this journey. So how will you all do this and at the same time maintaining safety for your behavioral health coaches like Angela, but also the safety of the folks that you're working with? Well, the the COVID-19 pandemic has negatively affected our consumers' mental health and have created new barriers for this population of people already suffering from mental illness and substance use disorders 
um, social distancing for this population has equated to social isolation, which has caused an influx of um, symptoms presenting themselves. Some of these new barriers, of course, is the way people receive treatment now. You know, a lot of treatment is telemed and not a lot of one-on-one, but the Atlanta Regional Commission has made sure that as coaches that we have all of the uh, PPE needed to um, go out and um, continue to do home visits with the um, individuals we serve. Many um, in-home providers have ceased going into the homes, Mm -hmm. but um, we have continued to go out and um, see our consumers and uh, we uh, be creative. I've taught them all how to download Google Duel or use FaceTime, or um, we've gotten assistive technology for those who have barriers Mm -hmm. such as tablets and things like that so that they can continue to be connected. And um, sometimes you just have to be really, really innovative. If I, um, you know, reduced um, maybe going into the actual homes, but if it's a beautiful day and it's nice outside, we may go in the garden Mm -hmm. and have a session where we're outdoors. We make sure that we sterilize the area, sterilize the equipment. Um, When appointments are scheduled now, of course, um, the many of the housing uh, facilities, their common areas aren't open. So we bring out our computers. Um, um, we uh, make sure they're sterilized. We set them up where they could still have their appointments. Um, we uh, connected them with um, medication delivery um systems where they can have their medicine delivered to them and those who still have to go out into the community for appointments we make sure that you know if they don't have a mask we give them a mask they don't have gloves we give them gloves if you know we we're very creative in making sure that we're safe as well as those who we serve and mary and angela as we wrap up i imagine also that with the services you all are able to provide, there's so many out there that you aren't able to reach. It could be due to funding, due to the fact that right now you're focusing on a specific area. But imagine what a resource like this could do for people throughout the entire nation. Exactly. And we're the first one that's done this in Georgia. And we're hoping um, that we that this model becomes something that can be adapted nationwide. We've gotten a lot of inquiries about it. That's why we're excited too about the pilot in Augusta, taking it out of the region, looking at a different part of the state and see how um, we can refine the program and improve the program mm-hmm. so that you know we have a sense of how it might work in different um, geographic scenarios as well as housing scenarios. Mary and Angela, for some clarity here for our listeners, you all work directly specifically with housing partners, correct? That is correct. We partner with housing 
uh, housing uh, providers in the area who have residents that may need the service. So right now we're um, finalizing contracts with the two partners that will be using the um, United Healthcare grant with us, and that and then we'll work with their residents on that. But individuals who who do seek assistance or need to be connected to resources, um, and they're not part of the housing um, partners that we we already partner with, they can access Empowerline to get connected to resources. Um, as it relates to their mental wellness. Now, one of the things we are looking at with this new grant is looking at ways to help people who are not in those congregate settings. We may have opportunity to work with people who might be living in a single family home, maybe renting a, 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 a room in a single family home. We're looking at all those other kinds of issues because we know that there's a critical need out there. Uh, so that's one of the things we want to explore with the resources we have in this new grant. How can we expand it? Who else can we help? And that is a great way to end this conversation. Angela White, Behavioral Health Coach for the Atlanta Regional Commission. Mary Newton, the Behavioral Health Program Coordinator for the ARC. And we've been talking about a program that helps older adults with some behavioral health challenges maintain their housing, thus preventing eviction. Mary, Angela, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Good information. And thank you for what you all do in the community. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. Death. I know, talking about death isn't always comfortable or easy. And for some, it can be even more challenging than to seek support, and especially during this COVID-19 pandemic. There are social distancing guidelines and stay-at-home orders. Yeah, they've made it difficult for traditional in-person support groups to gather. Still, there are some ways to stay connected during this time, and this is where my next guest comes in. His name is the Reverend Dr. Mark LaRocca Pitts, and he's the host and founder of Death Cafe Atlanta. The group's goal? To provide a safe space for conversations about loss and grief. It's actually part of a network of chapters in more than 100 countries around the world. And Reverend Dr. Mark LaRocca joins me now to talk about all this. Thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. I'm delighted to be here and look forward to our conversation about uh, Death Cafe, death, uh, uh, COVID-19 and its effects on these conversations. Um, I think you mentioned uh, what our purpose was. In mm -hmm. many ways, it's to, to basically raise awareness uh, about death and, and help people realize that this is a conversation that can be both beneficial and constructive. It's interesting because, uh, full disclosure here, I've had two siblings pass away within the last six months. That's been challenging. And, you know, for some folks to say, talking about loss and grief, too much. For our listeners, you want them to know that's not a bad way to approach it. If you just don't want to talk about it, you don't want to talk about it. And that's okay, correct? Yeah. Death Cafe is not for everyone. And actually, it's not really a grief support group or a bereavement uh, group. <laughs> And so someone who might be uh, having experienced recent deaths, processing that may or may not be, uh, the death cafe may not, may not be the best venue for that. 
-hmm. because in many ways it's people who who come do discuss experiences they've had with death and people who are who have died uh, processing grief but in many ways it's just a place where people can come together who are curious about this topic and have no other place to talk about it mm -hmm. i mean i don't know if you've been to a, a cocktail party or a sporting event and you turn to your neighbor and say hey bill what do you think about death no <laughs> yeah exactly but there are people who want to talk about that and yeah. process it and um we it's it's considered often a taboo subject or a morbid subject but you'll find in death cafes there's a lot of laughter um, and really the whole goal is to come to grips with one's mortality uh, in order to live a fuller life uh, because you've come to terms with the fact that you are going to die mm -hmm. and you've thought through what that means to you and you've figured out how to live in light of that and that can be very beneficial uh, and healthy I believe uh, back in the middle ages they had the art of dying um, and it was how to die well mm -hmm. wow and I think we need to recover some of that let's back up a little bit give a little bit of history lesson for our listeners um, these deaf cafes how long has this been around it's been around since, well, it actually started uh, in the 2000s with Bernard Cartaz, a, a French sociologist who did uh, Café Mortales uh, in French-speaking European countries. He did about 40 or 50, uh, retired, wrote a book, you know, The Life of an Academic. Uh, a few years later, uh, John Underwood, uh, may he rest in peace, uh, in London picked up the idea and changed the name to uh, Death Café and introduced it as kind of a social franchise and deathcafe.com people can go there and find out all kinds of information on this and he i believe had the first death cafe in his uh house with his uh his wife helped his mother helped facilitate it in 2012 and then um later in that fall um uh, it was brought to the united states uh, uh lizzie miles mm -hmm. uh, in columbus ohio and then in march of 2013 I did the first one in kind of the Southeast uh, mm -hmm. in Atlanta. And we were the first ones to do it in a uh, cemetery. We do it at the historic Oakland Cemetery, a beautiful setting. Well, you, I mean, you really bring it home, don't you, Reverend? You, <laughs> uh, you know, I've got grant money. I've got a grant so that supports it. So I can kind of, uh, you know, buy food and we have good snacks. And uh, uh, so it's, it's actually quite nice. Uh, yeah. It's a perfect setting to talk about death. And since then, uh, I was about the 60 or 70th death cafe, and now we've had over 10,000. But what drew you to it? What drew you, Reverend, into wanting to be one of the curators of this space, of this death cafe? That's a great question. Uh, various things drew me into it. One was I used to own and manage coffee houses back in the 70s and 80s and always loved cafe culture, mm -hmm. uh, coffee houses. Then in my work uh, as a, I'm a professional healthcare chaplain. Uh, mm -hmm. And so I've worked 20 odd years in uh, hospitals and hospice. And I found that whenever death became part of the conversation, I became very alive and focused mm -hmm. because I knew this was an important conversation. And that awareness that I came alive in this conversation, how important it was Com combined with my love of cafe culture, when I heard of Death Cafe, I thought that's right up my alley. Mm. Um, and it's been, for me, very beneficial because I was raised in a, a certain kind of, you know, Midwestern uh, Christian culture, had certain understandings of death and dying and what happened after death. And I found through my conversations that I wasn't really 
content with my own understanding of death. Hmm. And as a chaplain, I don't know, you know, someone say, well, you know, pastor, what happens? Chaplain, what happens after death? And I'd always say, well, what do you think? <laughs> In other words, I never had to have the answers mm -hmm. for that kind of question. But Death Cafe has invited me into this a deeper conversation so that I can kind of transform my own thinking uh, and come to an idea that I can live with, if not die with. Someone listening may say, well, Reverend, is this affiliated with a particular religion or denomination? And does faith play a role in this? Do I have to be of a certain belief or is this just for anyone who just wants to support this space to be in this space? Yeah, I'm actually the odd bird out uh, being an ordained Methodist pastor. Uh, most folks are uh, social workers uh, uh, in the death industry. Uh, it's, it's actually uh, non-religious, mm -hmm. uh, it's not faith-based at all, very sectarian. Uh, and in my conversations in a death cafe, we have uh, we have Buddhists, uh, uh, Muslims, Jews, atheists, Wiccans, uh, pagans, uh, you name it, humanists, uh, and it's a broad-ranging conversation. And part of the Death Cafe principle is that you cannot uh, assert any kind of agenda mm. or draw towards any conclusion. And so, in many ways, the fact most people who come to my Death Cafe may not even know I'm a pastor mm. unless I identify myself as that. Um, and so it has nothing to do with faith-based, uh, religion. It's very broad ranging. Uh, if anything would define it, probably existentialism mm -hmm. would be the background for that. You're not about trying to fix any problems. You're about no, solutions no. and being a, a space and offering support, a path for support. Well, support, yes, but you, you can't fix death. You can't fix suffering. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's really given people a space to converse about this and uh, deal with their own emotions related to it. It's not about fixing people or asserting any kind of belief structure. And that's kind of uh, anathema to the whole idea of Death Cafe is to assert some sort of one way or right way or here's a solution uh, to your problem. That's shifted a little bit with the COVID-19 stuff. That was my next actually. question. I figured I could see that in your eyes kind of, uh, because people do want to understand this and they often come to Death Cafe helping to trying to find a, a solution of some way and to give information and, and that's not what we're designed for mm -hmm. a Death Cafe yet people have been confronted with the reality of death in a way they have never been confronted before unless they've been diagnosed with a terminal illness or been in that situation. Mm -hmm. That kind of existential reality that I could die because of something unforeseen and that I can't see and can't control has revolutionized our conversation a little bit mm -hmm. uh, because suddenly it's, it's something very real. And not only might I die, but I could be the purveyor of death mm -hmm. to someone else. And that has really changed our conversation uh, in significant ways, in healthy ways, I think, because we're all going to die. You think this pandemic is changing the way a lot of us think about death or, or mortality here? I think it has the potential. As you know, people can exist a long time in denial. 
and just go about their business as if nothing has changed. And we see that quite relevant. You saw my, I had my mask here because I keep a mask around my neck at all times because mm -hmm. I just, you know, when I'm coming and going, you never know what context you need it. Yet people can live in denial. Nonetheless, I think underneath all that, there is an anxiety um, that some people say has, is always there, but this pandemic has brought it to the surface. So it's much more, takes a lot more effort to deny it than it used to. And so how can people talk about that in a constructive way mm -hmm. and find other people who are wrestling with this as well? That is part of what Death Cafe is functioning for right now. It's not in person, we do it via Zoom, uh, but the conversation is around the pandemic and how we're all dealing with it and how death is much more present in our thinking in a way it wasn't before. On average, Reverend, how many folks are attending the the gatherings online? Um, we like to keep them small. Almost everyone I've talked to likes between five and eight uh, because it's just, you don't want a whole group of folks there. Uh, in person, you can, um, I've had as many as 40 uh, yeah. in an in-person small tables. But for the online, um, uh, generally people are talking about five to 10. Uh, at the max. It's just a little more intimate. People have a chance to talk and that's very helpful. You can talk to people from all over the world. Yeah. Because it's online. And I recently had a, a, a death cafe. We had a person from New Zealand, person from Australia, two people from Great Britain, three people from the United States, including East Coast, Midwest, and West Coast, all in one conversation. That was exciting to realize that we're all in this together. Prior to COVID-19, we met regularly once a month at Oakland Cemetery uh, for our meetings in person. There's a, 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 in the bell tower on the second floor is there a beautiful space to meet. Mm -hmm. However, now we're meeting by way of Zoom. All that being said, once we're able to meet in person again, we will go back hopefully to Oakland uh, Cemetery. It's just, they're great hosts. They enjoy having this uh, conversation there. And so we long for the days when we can get back in that beautiful setting. And typically, do you all, when you start, do you throw out a topic? Do you just let folks reflect and then the conversation grows from there? Or when you all gather online, there is a topic that folks know that they're going to be discussing if they choose to in this virtual space? No, because having a topic is antithetical to <laughs> Death Cafe. Now, that doesn't mean I don't have icebreakers. Mm -hmm. to help people get started. And I usually have two questions I fall back on. One is, why do you want to be here at this death cafe? What brought you here? And sometimes it's as mundane as, you know, my spouse or my partner <laughs> forced me here. Uh, other people, it's because of recent death, some experience. The other question I like to ask is, fill in the blank for this question for you. Death is, and what is death? What is it? Is it, you know, is it imminent? fearful what and that kind of gets things started but there are no topics there is no agenda which usually means it takes a while to get started mm -hmm. but by the time we start wrapping it up it's very hard to get people to come back down to normal conversation and uh, it's quite exciting to see these conversations how they build and the energy and the synergy uh, at work as we wrap up reverend let me ask you this being the curator of this deaf cafe what insight has come to you 
personally? Mm, that's a great question. Um, and one of the things I'm still getting there, but one of the things I've always noticed and why I continue to do death cafes, I've done over a hundred in seven years, 98 to 99% of the time, I learned something new. Either it's two ideas that weren't juxtaposed or suddenly juxtaposed. But I think for me, what I have learned most is that I have to live every day with the knowledge that I will die. And that could happen at any time. So I need to make sure that those whom I love know I love them, that I'm doing, I'm living my life the best I can at this time. And am I ready at any time to say, here it is. Mm -hmm. So for me, I think the thing I've learned most is just the, not only the imminence, but the uncertainty of when that's gonna come about and how to live uh, in that reality uh, and in that knowledge. And I've rechanged my whole thinking about death and what happens after death and what happens, you know, that, that that's kind of uh, academic, yeah. um, but that was fun. <laughs> I enjoyed that process. Uh, but on a kind of more visceral level, mm -hmm. it's I could die at any time, any day, and I'm okay with that. I don't want it to happen. No, I, I, I love life and I'm living, I'm living a good life right now. And I want to die a good death, whatever that might look like. And that's, you know, I might be a little privileged when I say that in a sense, because, you know, we don't always get to choose how we die. Hmm. And so it's interesting because one of the things that did come up in our conversations, we had an African-American female at, in one of these death cafes online. And as we were talking about the idea that we could die at any time by going about our business, she said, Whew, I've lived with that reality for many years being mm -hmm. African-American. Yeah. And suddenly I think this kind of white privileged male, I, uh, whoa, what's that mean to live in a reality that you could die at any time because of your skin color? And that was profound to me. And so, you know, I'm living, I'm learning that through COVID-19 that I could die at any time. Yet there are other folks who have had this before because of some other issues, race, uh, culture, sexual preference, religion, you could die at any time because of that. That is, that's, that, that can bring society together if we realize we could all die at any time because that's, that unifies us, I believe. It has the power to, to teach us compassion for one another, that we could all die for various reasons. So let's support one another. Let's care for one another. Let's protect one another. And let's 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 let each person live their life fully. And that's a good way to end this conversation. Reverend Dr. Mark LaRocca Pitts, and he's the host and founder of the Death Cafe Atlanta. Reverend, thank you so much for taking the time. Good conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Rose. I really enjoyed it myself. Be well and be safe. You too. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelly Canavy. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. And listen whenever you want, because Closer Look is now available as a podcast. Just visit NPR One or your favorite streaming app and subscribe. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Thank you.
Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.